Welcome to episode 13 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. Picking up where we left off, Raul Wellenberg set up feeding stations in the houses under Swedish protection, and so did the Swiss consulate in the international ghetto, working jointly with the International Red Cross. The only trouble with these kitchens and feeding stations was that the people were serving food, usually the Red Cross employees or members of the neutral country's consulate didn't have any ways to defend themselves from the Nazi attacks. In the Swedish protected houses, Wallenberg used Jews to prepare and serve food, and they were employed by the Swedish government. But in either case, they were facing the Aerocross gang's brutal behavior day after day. We witnessed several times that a small Aerocross unit tipped over the soup container while the members of the Red Cross were serving it. The long line waiting to be served had to find another kitchen to go to or go home hungry. It was a sad event to watch that the food which could feed hundreds of people was going down the sewer. These senseless actions were carried out not only by the young but the older Nazis too. These atrocities were impossible to stop. Every time that happened the Red Cross added another pending case to the pending trial against the Aerocross party. In the last few weeks, before the communist forces invaded Budapest, there was no order in the capital at all. Those gangs who had machine guns in their possession had the power and they made the law. History proved it that they used their power for evil purposes. Some of those brutal murderers of the Arrow Cross Party escaped the penalty for the crimes they committed. Some of them moved to the other part of Hungary or left the country before the war ended. They never have been accused or had to face trial, but they cannot escape the final judgment. The chaos and the killing continued in the capital. The Aerocross gangs, although they knew their terror would soon come to an end, still wanted to carry out their final rampage. On January 11, 1945, a large number of Aerocross party members in uniforms and heavily armed rounded up over 100 Jews, men and women, from the ghetto on Kirali Street, Dobb Street, and Akafsa Street. While beating and torturing them, they marched them to the bank of the Danube River on the Pest side of the city. Those who could not walk or fell down were shot on the spot. The Nazis tied together three people with ropes. The one in the middle was shot, and then the three were thrown into the icy water. The live ones could not even swim because their arms were tied. The weight of the dead person pulled down the live ones and they were all drowned. Before they started to march across the city, some of the young women offered themselves to the Nazis hoping they can escape the killing. They were used by the Aerocross gang, but later they were still murdered. The Nazis did not let the Jews put on proper winter clothing when they chased them out of their apartments. They kept telling them that where they're going, they don't need warm coats. They chased them across the city in 15 degree temperature Fahrenheit. By the time they reached the riverbank, they were half frozen. Raul Wellenberg could not stop the Aerocross gang either. They were threatening him too. He called us when they started to march, but no military help was available, and we could not help either, because the Nazis were heavily armed and outnumbered us this time. All we could do was drive to the riverbank, six to eight hundred feet away from the Nazis, and try to fish out some of the already half-dead people. That was a very tragic situation, 
We saw people still managing to stay on top of the water, but we could not reach them. The water was moving fast, and the screams died away in a short time. From the 20-foot deep icy water, we could save six men only. The rest of them, over a hundred, died a terrible death while the Aerocross gang was watching them. The same day, a gang of Aerocross youths, armed and in uniforms, forced themselves into one of the Jewish hospitals. They started to torture the patients, doctors, and nurses. They chased the patients out of their bed, raped some of the younger nurses, kicked and beat the patients, and turned their beds over. When they fell on the floor and could not climb back into the beds by themselves, they made the nurses put them back, and then they turned the bed over again. They gathered all of them into one room and ordered the nurses, the doctors, and the kitchen aides to undress. Then they beat them with leather whips until they were bleeding. The torture went on for a while. Then when the savage herd became tired of it, they started to shoot them to death in a brutal, inhuman way. Some of the patients and doctors were begging the Nazis not to kill them, but the one who asked for his life was shot first. They massacred everybody, 113 people, young and old and sick were killed in two hours for one reason, because they were Jews. One nurse managed to escape certain death by hiding in a dirty laundry cart before the Nazis entered the hospital. The other survivor was a young man who was shot and fell to the floor and the dead ones fell on him and covered him. When the Red Cross rescue team went to clean up the place, they found him alive and took him to another hospital where he recovered from his injury later on. On January 12, 1945, Raw Wallenberg visited us at the headquarters. He was really upset about the atrocities of the Aerocross gangs, although he knew our feeling about communism. He expressed his hope that the Red Army will take over the capital in a short time, stop the killing by the Nazis, and end the suffering of the Jewish population in the city. He did not believe the communist dictatorship and ideology either, but due to the present situation, it was the only solution to stop the killing and save the remaining Jews. He expressed his gratitude towards us, the underground organization, and as he said, he would not have been able to do everything by himself. He was hoping the Russian authorities would accept his position and he would be allowed to stay in Hungary for a while until the Jewish population regained their rights and properties. He wanted a couple dozen more birth certificates to take to those people to take those people out of his protected houses. He told us that he found out that the most of his protected houses are under Aerocross surveillance. His information did not surprise us because we knew it from our undercover agent already. The Nazis did not have respect for anything anymore. They were waiting for the right time to invade those houses and torture and, or kill the people who lived there. They just follow their own rules and presently nobody can do anything about it. We kept taking people out of the ghetto and using the ambulance again. With the siren on, we entered the ghetto, packed 12 persons in there, and left without stopping. Two Aerocross guards at the gate of the ghetto were warming their hands over a barrel of fire, but they did not pay any attention to a military ambulance. Later on the same day, we repeated our rescue mission from the other entrance of the ghetto. We saved 24 people from the very possible destruction. 24 people is not a large number, but when it comes to life or death, even one person is important. Wallenberg's request for more birth certificates made us very happy because we just could not go into the ghetto and ask people if they wanted to take a chance on their lives. But when Wallenberg had the prospects, 
that was a different situation. On January 13, 1945, I was on duty in a military base when Raul Wallenberg called and wanted to know if he can give my phone number to Mr. Goldberg, who lives on a Kafsa Street in the ghetto. He said that Goldberg is an old friend of his, and the matter he wants to talk about is very important. I told him to meet me an hour later, told me that his son knows me, and would like to talk to me about a very important matter. I told him where his son could meet me while on leave from the ghetto. I knew only one Goldberg family. Way back in the mid-1930s, their son was my classmate, and we graduated together from high school. His name was David, and he was one of my best friends. I didn't see him since the end of 1941, when I was out on the Russian front at the Donyas River, and he was in a labor camp, a different military division. Ever since then, I did not hear a word about him. At two o'clock, I went to the place where we were supposed to meet. Sure thing, it was him, my old classmate and friend, David. We were very happy to see each other again after those long school years we spent together. But he was not the old David I used to know. He was very thin, lost lots of weight, and looked worried. He told me that only by a miracle he survived the Russian front. The German soldiers were shooting Jewish people on labor duty. He had a chance to put on a dead soldier's uniform, and when the Hungarian divisions were ordered back to Hungary, he managed to move back with them. When he got back to Hungary, he was a Jew again and went to live with his parents. After the Nazi lower Hungarian politicians established the ghettos, he and his parents had to move into their present location. He told me that a couple Aerocross gang members are after his sister and his parents moved her to a friendly family's apartment. A couple of Aerocross youths were beating his father because he did not want to tell them where his daughter was. He told me that he heard about our relocating activities from Raul he was afraid that before the Red Army will take over the capital, the Aerocross gangs might kill them. He wanted to know if we can do anything for them to save their lives from the Nazis and get them out of the ghetto. There were five of them, his parents, his sister, and their grandfather. I had to ask him if they were willing to be Christians at least for a while. They said they would take any conditions they had to. When I told them to get ready in four hours so I can pick them up where they live, he started to cry like a baby. On the same day after dark, we pulled up with the ambulance at their place. We packed the absolutely necessary belongings into the ambulance and took them to the other side of the capital, to Buda. We had an apartment with four rooms occupied by a Jewish couple on Vitez Street. My friend and his family had to squeeze in in four rooms. They were all happy about it. We all knew that the present situation was only temporary for the reason to save lives because the Red Army was so close to a breakthrough and when that happens, everything will change for them. After a few days, the Red Army invaded the eastern part of the capital, and the underground organization moved to Buddha. That was the last time I saw or talked to David. Looking back to those times, after 51 years, it looks like all those w events we went through were like nothing to it. But in reality, it was not that simple at all. Hiding or just helping Jews to evade, and at that time the existing Jewish restriction laws was punishable by death by firing squad. It took a lot of courage, planning, and hard work, because after all, it was very dangerous. Our lives and the lives of the people we tried to save were at stake all the time. On January 14, 1945, another Jewish hospital was seized by an Aerocross gang and the Hungarian gendarmes. The Swiss consulate immediately contacted the top Hungarian authorities to get military intervention. A military unit was sent to the hospital from the military base on Uloy Road to restore order. Unfortunately, 
the Aerocross gang and the gendarmes outnumbered and overpowered the military rescue unit. They had to retreat without achieving any results. The Nazis, after torturing them, sexually assaulted some of the younger nurses and robbed them of whatever they had. Doctors, patients, nurses were ordered to disrobe, and then all of them were brutally massacred. Approximately 160 Jews lost their lives. Not too many escaped that deadly attack by the Nazis. There were no eyewitnesses to the crime. One doctor who spotted the gang before they entered the hospital escaped through the rear entrance of the building, left the ghetto, and from a private home he called Charles Lutz. A few more escaped running away from the hospital before the Nazis broke down the doors. The doctor could not give an exact number of how many escaped or how many perished by the Nazi Aerocross. Raul Wellenberg and the Swiss consul were demanding a decent burial for the Jews who were killed by the Hungarian Nazis and military. But the top Hungarian authorities denied any action and instructed the Red Cross to take care of the matter. Later on, the same day, a similar gang of Aerocross and gendarmes forced themselves into an Orthodox Jewish poorhouse. Most of the people living there were aged and helpless. The Nazis threw them on trucks and took them to the Orthodox Jewish hospital, made them disrobe, took their rings, earrings, or whatever jewelry they had, brutally beat them with leather whips, and then savagely murdered all of them. Between 95 and 100 Jews were killed this time. After those killings, the International Red Cross had to take care of the dead ones. In the last 10 days before the Russian takeover of the capital, Nazi Aerocross gangs and similar elements were not satisfied anymore to kill and rob the Jewish population only. They could not go to the eastern suburb because the Red Army was too close. They had to go downtown and rob jewelry stores, fur stores, and banks. Then they moved over to the west side of the city, to Buda. On January 15, 1945, 21 break-ins and robberies were reported on, the, on Rosa Dam and vicinity. Similar gangs, like the three or four Aerocross youths, youth, went to the front door of the villas or bigger houses they knew belonged to wealthy people. If they did not want to let them in, the Nazis broke the door and forced themselves in. Several times, they beat the owner if he refused. They threatened to kill his family members if they did not want to turn over their rings, necklaces, and everything else the Nazis wanted. These robberies went on until the last minute before the Red Army invaded the capital. The killings and other crimes were probably would have continued forever, or at least as long as the last Jew is alive. But on January 16, 1945, the communist forces, led by Marshal Rydian Melanovsky, entered the city of Budapest. Approximately 120,000 Jews were liberated. No more killing by the Aerocross gangs. Finally, they were safe from any terror. And the most important fact of all, they were human beings again. On January 17, 1945, the international ghetto was liberated and all the Jews were, were taking off their armbands with the yellow star on them. The Star of David was taken off the houses in the ghetto too. The Jews in Hungary finally could inhale the fresh, cold January air freely without any fear. But their minds will never be free of the past year's terror, savage brutality, and sorrow of the lost lives. The eastern part of the capital, Pest, was invaded by the communist forces on the 16th of January. But part of Buda was still under Hungarian rule. A few highways and county roads were still open toward the Austrian frontier. A Wehrmacht battalion and Hungarian military forces were still holding up and fighting part of the Red Army in and around the royal castle, 
was the former Regent Admiral von Horthy's residence. The entire neighborhood was taken over by the communist soldiers, chasing the people out of their homes. They set up machine guns on the top of the roofs and with cannons kept the royal castle under heavy fire. After a few weeks, the Hungarian military didn't have any way out. They gave themselves up. Finally, on February 13, 1945, the Hungarian and Wehrmacht forces surrendered to the communist army. The same day when Pest was taken by Marshal Ridian Malinowski and his communist forces, we called on Raoul Wellenberg again, and the last time we still wanted him to leave Hungary because we didn't trust the Russian communists or the Hungarians. Although the Russian communist forces occupied almost the entire country, we had the ways and connections to leave the country safely. We tried to convince him that the Russian intelligence knew about his connection with the American agencies, and once he was questioned about that by the KGB, they will not let him go free. But if he will go forward west and meet the western powers, he will be absolutely safe and can probably do more for the Jews in Budapest than staying and reasoning with the communist dictators. He did not want to believe that in the future the United States will have no say over what was happening in the communist-occupied territories. He was stubborn, and we just could not convince him. He had the plans and what he wanted to carry out for the, with the future Hungarian government and Western powers. He was determined to stay, and we just could not do anything to change his mind. The next day he was seized by Russian intelligence, and under guard he was allowed to visit the Jewish Relief Committee at 6 Tatra Street. He let them know he was summoned to Marshal Ridian Malinowski's headquarters in Debrecen. He said his last goodbye to his friends and they left. That was the last time he was seen in Hungary. Raoul Wallenberg was more than a friend to the Jewish population in Hungary. He was a legendary figure. His faith in justice was so strong that he could not believe the Russian authorities will harm him in any manner after all his efforts to save thousands of Jewish lives. The Jewish community in Budapest, to show their gratitude toward him, named a street in his name, in New Lapotveros, L-A-P-O-T-V-A-R-O-S. The street is four blocks long, from Pannonia Street to the bank of the Danube River. After the war was over, several inquiries were made by the Swedish government during the years of Stalin's dictatorship, but the Russian government repeatedly denied any knowledge of Wallenberg's whereabouts. The Swedish government was not powerful enough to put pressure on Stalin's communist government to achieve any result. But if the USA and the British government would have tried to put a little more pressure on Stalin, it is more than possible that Raoul Wallenberg would be alive and free today. A diplomat whose name was so well known here and in the USA and in all of Europe who did so much while risking his own life to save thousands and thousands of Jewish lives deserved at least that much help from the Western powers, but neither the USA nor the British Kingdom showed any serious attempt to save his life. The Jewish population of the United States must hear about Raoul Wellenberg's endless efforts and how he fought the Nazis to save thousands of Jewish lives from Nazi extermination, many times risking his own. The American Jewish organizations must know that after the war ended, that Wallenberg was taken to Russia against his will but the entire Jewish population of the United States failed to make any attempt to persuade their representatives through whom the government would have had to make serious inquiries about Wallenberg's whereabouts. It looks like that after he carried out his successful mission, the Jewish population worldwide didn't care too much about him any longer, except for the Hungarian Jews. 
Their gratitude toward him will never fade, and they will never forget what Raoul Wallenberg did for them. But they could not help him. They were living in a communist state after the war, and they could not complain to their representatives about the injustice made by a bigger and more powerful communist government. This concludes episode 13 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. Chronologically, the Holocaust had ended, at least in Hungary. There would be no more killing of the Jews. George continued to write, though, there will be one more episode after this. In it, he does a brief summary of the historical path that, that was taken to convert people into killers, convert the youth into killers. And then he discusses how and why it could happen here if a charismatic leader tried to pull it off. Imagine he made his predictions when he wrote this in 1996 to 1998. As of now in 2023, we're awfully close to it happening again.